our travelers, and welcome to the Way of the Shaman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am Captain Frodo, and I will be your guide and uh, host along the way. And I guess at these uh, strange times when uh, uh, Australia is in the fiercest lockdown that ever has been known, uh, I find that uh, probably it is a trigger word to call you fellow travelers, as a lot of you might not be doing very much traveling at uh, this very time. But for these uh, parts of the world where um, I am residing in Norway, the, everything is still open. The uh, international travel is still open to me, being double vaccinated, so I can go to Germany, even though there's all sorts of restrictions in place uh, there. So um, um, that's been a blessing for me to know. Um, so yeah, last week's uh, episode started out um, talking about um, inner exploration, as I had promised a couple of weeks ago, um, and that there is, of course, a lot of um, modes of inner exploration, and I just talked about uh, meditation, a sort of mindfulness practice that I had gone through, and that I uh, would probably benefit from continuing on doing, but haven't uh, been keeping up with of late. There's a lot of stuff happening. But there was also, of course, uh, non-meditative uh, ways of exploring our innards. And I've done that through journaling and note-taking by just uh, looking back at uh, keeping a notebook with uh, several, uh, like I might skip a bunch of pages so that I have uh, different sections within that notebook. So I start out uh, taking notes on one project and instead of writing all the notes just in order uh, on in random, I have either, I have actually have to be honest, I have lots of different notebooks, probably six, and then I also have lots of different notes, just using the Notes app. I am using Apple, and they have this Notes app where you can dictate into it, or you can um, you can just uh, type in a regular old way, as you do with your thumbs, and uh, I spend a lot of the walks walking with my dog, typing in, and then I go, oh, here's an idea for my dinosaur show. All right, I'll just open that note and put them in, and then they're in a jumble, and then I take this note, and... Uh, copy all the paste or send it to myself as an email and then I copy all the text into a document and then work on it further when the time has come for that. So um, these kind of things of looking at um, just notes and uh, and looking at the sequences of notes. So you see how the ideas have developed and stuff and uh, I also write down in the different notes I said I can get my ideas where I just have daily thoughts. I have a note that's that where I don't know where they go. That one is often a, a good place to know what am I actually thinking these days? What is it of the stuff that I read and the stuff that I hear and the stuff that I think that I go mm, this is an idea. I don't know if it's good or bad but I write it down. Sometimes when I then go back and look at that note on my phone and I can find oh wow there's a thing going on here, developing. <clears throat> like the dinosaur show was one of those a while ago, and now it's getting closer to maybe happen. Anyway, I am getting lost. Uh, but the final section, which was probably the more sort of practical advice of the uh, last episode, had to do with synchronicity and just being aware of the world around you and the... Um, little clues and the little things that opens up the sort of um, 
a bit uh, new agey kind of thing of going if you ask the universe it will provide but that's also of course uh, something that um, is um, practiced by chaos magicians where you know writing things down and making it into a kind of formula and saying it that means that you are now fully attentive to wanting to make that thing happen and you will be able to catch all the little details and all the little possibilities that are out there that would help you get towards that goal so yeah we explored um, synchronicity at some length and uh, told through the story of me being picked up by two australian boys and taken into um, the best part of my life yeah it was a good time and uh, yeah that uh, basically leads us up to today and about today we're about on a we're on a sort of at the end of a large um, section here where we've uh, had uh, eight episodes of following the way and a lot of these things uh, can be a little abstract or be what I think of as foundational last time I talked about if there's a lot of uh, chaos all around go deep if we do manage to go deep then um, there is uh, not so much disturbance and I find that some of these things if we can keep them in our mind when we create then uh, we will um, more quickly get to a meaningful and a deeper conversation with our audience and today's episode will kind of epitomize this um, going deep. We're going to look at uh, human perception and a few questions that are real foundational as to what a human being is. And uh, in doing so, I think we will have created a nice uh, solid foundation. It's now become part of the way that we talk and the way that we think that we have this inner and outer and of course this is like as i said when i brought this up it's a, it's kind of a, something that we think is almost an inane thing but uh, as we have talked about it now over the last bit i think we're sort of getting familiar with this way of thinking and today we'll go real deep and then uh, as of uh, next episode we will start to not look at uh, what it means to be human or what it means to exist in the world uh, we will look specifically at what a show is and as we as 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 how i see a show and as we do that we will then start to link up some of these ideas that seemed a little bit more abstract and it's now going to go down to brass tacks as we over the next few episodes look into specifically what the show is how can we break it down in a way so that we can always ask uh, good and beautiful questions about the work that we see or the work that we're about to create and after that we will expand that exploration to not just look at what exactly is the show how can we break down and create a little map of that for our onwards journey but we will then look on what is showmanship itself and as we do that um, we are into the heart of uh, this exploration and what it has uh, been leading up to and then after that we will then go see where it um, yeah if you want the overview of this episode I'm realizing that I'm 
doing a little bit of an overview, but we've done that in a previous episode. So with all this said, just say it's a pleasure to hear from you. I heard from Al Miller the other day, just sending me a message and saying that the last episode was uh, was had, had inspired him. And if there's anything that I would hope uh, that these things do, it's to inspire you to go deeper and also just to expand out into other projects, which is a lot of the feedback that I get is um, from you. Is is that it's that people, after having thought these bigger thoughts, they are prepared and ready to take on projects bigger than what will I do for my next trick, but thinking of ways to put things together or even in their own life taking on other projects so that is inspiring for me and on that note i just like to say thank you for listening and coming along on all these uh, journeys i'm about within the next if it goes the way that it goes now it looks like within the next few weeks i will hit 10,000 episode downloads not big by the world standard but uh, very big for me thank you so much and for now let's uh Go on to the big ideas. A human map to guide creation. Or um, possibly it's a... This is an attempt to make a further map of what it means to be human. And uh, by pinpointing some of these um, ideas, we will be able to use these uh, as a guide and to ask some more direct questions to move us along in creation. So let's look a little deeper into my folk psychological view of the human being in an attempt to sketch a map of the human underground. Let's try to illuminate some deep aspects of what makes us humans tick. As ambitious as it might be, I'd like to offer a few perspectives on potential structures of our inner experience, as I see them. Knowing yourself, and thus knowing others, which is the people that we will be performing for, is to me the most fundamental starting point in creating and tailoring my own creations. As abstract as it might seem, I both fully believe in the usefulness of having thought of these things and personally I find these things also particularly interesting and I have also found that giving these foundational matters some thought gives a very interesting perspective and original starting point for my own creative processes this is something that's I of course didn't know when I was just doing it but as I have more and more been in co-creative processes with people and just over the last year having some long ongoing show creations with people uh, it has dawned on me that I have a different approach to uh, putting acts together which of course is pointed out by people that that's that's why my work is the way that it is and uh, I guess these are the reason why we're going so deep is to help you as well get this kind of point of view give you the lens of showmanship that I've that I have uh, because this kind of thought can spark novel ideas and approaches to ideas and potential material for performance 
which a regular little jam on the floor in a rehearsal space might not stumble upon. In this way, these deep questions become tools for creation in a practical sense, whilst also offering important building blocks in our self-understanding. The way of the showman is always constantly working on what we present for our audience, but also working on ourselves, because I do believe that what we are presenting is very much a reflection of ourselves, ourself. I have already pointed out in an earlier chapter that, as I see it in an early episode or whatever, I, as I see it, that what's ultimately on show is the human being. We show the things which interests humans and in whatever shape and form that might take. And the starting point for all performance is the human condition and what it means to be human. What humans want, fear, feel or think. That's deep down what's on display in shows. So the shaman is a curator, curator of time and attention. That's ultimately what we do. We present material within a uh, time frame and we are sharing that as a shared attention with the audience. But anyway, that's what we're going to talk about in the next few episodes. But with this in mind, the, the value of the coming grand questions should, I guess they should be obvious. Like, what is it like to be human? What is it like to be human? The, the experience of it surely must be different from what it's like to be a turtle or a bat. Um, I don't think we are unlike or better than any other things, but I do believe that there are uh, differences. And what does it feel like to be a human? Also, what happens inside us when we are alive and attentive? Are there some greater patterns that can help us better map the constant flux and enormous scope of human experience? And finally, how does the world appear for us? What's going on in the process of perceiving anything at all? These are enormous questions, and I'm by no means an expert in any of these topics, so there is no way I can answer them comprehensively. Think of me as Wikipedia, you know, it's a great first entry, but ultimately into a subject, but ultimately you have to continue on uh, the exploration because the attempts to answer these questions by philosophers and scientists and scholars fills whole sections of the libraries. My only credentials is that I am an enthusiastic explorer of these particular shelves in the libraries. Along the way, I have, like any artist is wont to, puzzled together my own understanding of the territory from the particular point of view of a showman and a performer. And no doubt it's flawed and limited. I might be ignorant of the existence of whole sections of the library, uh, but uh, all I aim for here is to provide you with some sketches of what I've found useful for myself and my work. I'm not going to attempt to directly or definitively answer these questions uh, for that they are way too expansive and I guess ultimately the history of philosophy is that's what has been attempting to answer those questions because as with all beautiful questions they send you on your way seeking answers and the trails and routes you follow might lead you to interesting destinations 
but the full explorations of these questions is best sought by yourself. I've included the questions as that I just talked about as potential sort of trailheads for your own exploration. But that said, I will touch on the questions all the way through this chapter as well as throughout this book. So let's, uh, let's take a stab at the last of those questions. What is perception? Like how do we interact with what our senses reveal to us about the world? What does it mean to sense anything or to perceive it? The world reveals itself to us in a barrage of sensory stimulation. Stimulation, you know, our eyes and ears and... Because as soon as we step outside or wake up in the morning, our many senses receive sights, sounds, smells, tastes, how our body is in space and sensations of touch. All this comes towards us. Light waves and sound waves travel through space and time to enter into us through our eyes and ears. And the sound waves quite literally moves us. It vibrates our eardrum as it hits. The sound vibrations make their way through the ossicles to the cochlea. The cochlea is filled with fluid and the sound vibrations travel through it like the ocean waves. Kind of. Some parts of the world quite literally enters into us through our senses. Our brain, which processes all this information, is almost completely encased in bone. All the brain knows about the world enters through these little holes and canals in the brain casing. There are certain things implanted in us about the world through our genes, certain instincts and inclinations, inclinations, but leaving this aside, the absolute vast majority of knowledge we have about the world comes to us through our senses. My experience of myself is not just found in the brain. My body is also very much part of me and shapes my experience of myself and the world. It tells me that there is something which is me and that there is something which is not me. There is something which is going on inside me that is not immediately accessible for others, just like I can't ultimately know what's going on inside another person. And I remember being a kid and having a conversation with some friends about a red mailbox, and the gist of the conversation was that I couldn't really know exactly what they saw when they saw the color of the mailbox, and I couldn't really know what they saw when they saw a red or saw that red, or that know that that red was the same as what I saw when I saw red. After all, I was colorblind. Still am. I'm a bit murky in the red-green part of the spectrum, particularly how greens and browns separate. I still saw color then, and I see it now, but I realized then that what I saw when I saw red could potentially be quite different from whatever it was that my friends saw. And this might have been my first kind of folk phenomenon, <laughs> phenomenological conversation. Like phenomenology is the study of experience, not just the way that the mailbox is, but how do I actually experience the mailbox. And in that moment, I think that's when I sort of first graphed that my experience of the mailbox was distinct from the mailbox that 
they saw or indeed even that I saw like I experienced the mailbox and the mailbox is there and I grasped that there was a difference between the mailbox as a thing in the world and my experience of it both those phenomena are subjects one can study one the study of the way that things are in the world we can measure weigh and count and the other how it feels to experience or interact with is a whole different mode of existence it's a whole the results of which has proven very difficult to measure and ob objectively quantify although great progress has been made on that too so let's look at the steps of perception steps of the process of perceiving something because in my simplified mapping of the process of perception the first step is that the world comes towards us and into us the second step is then what happens when we meet this sensory content the world enters us through our senses inside us we experience it and connect to it and even though our brain is hidden inside all this bone we experience the world as immediate and do not feel hindered in our perception of it only in very certain cases such as with optical or sensory illusions do we get glimpses of the limitations of our perception or that there is any kind of shaping of the sensory input by our biological functioning for instance we rarely consider that the biology of the lens in our eyes that makes us see the world differently than a fly which gets um, their visual information about the world from compound eyes or how our ears only hear sounds within a certain spectrum but there are certain high or low-pitched sounds that we just can't hear but that nonetheless they are there and certain animals they can and can hear them and can see them on top of that our brain process that processes the information in certain ways which in turn shape the input in ways for the most part which is you know invisible to us the study of illusions of course is near and dear to my heart we can learn so much about the world by studying how we perceive illusions and how they demonstrate ways that our perceptive process goes wrong this is as we've already looked at in length a particular field of interest for magicians science does study illusions but it's very much a niche field in part this could be because of its interdisciplinary requirements understanding illusions require a lot of different kinds of knowledge scientists study illusions um, if they are then they could do well with I would say always having a master magician with them in the laboratory since the main focus of magicians what they're right in the wheelhouse or what their interest is and real practical explorations are illusions in all their expressions and another factor that might be an obstacle in studying illusions is that ultimately they don't sort of exist the illusion is not something which exists in the world on its own the illusion is something which happens when our inner experience combines with the outer sensory stimuli uh, in a certain way like a disjointed way it's the result of a kind of breakdown in our interaction and understanding of the world like it's a breakdown in our conversation with the world it's when what our senses tells us stops making sense or stops conforming to what we think we know about the world or what the world is you could say that a, an illusion is experienced when our conversation with reality turns weird
I like that space to, <laughs> to inhabit that. How much we can perceive is also affected by the acuity of our senses. For instance, if I am not wearing glasses, there are things that I will miss and thus connections I will fail to make. And this might make me feel annoyed. When there are no detectable illusions and uh, perception goes smoothly, it might not be immediately obvious that we humans add anything at all to the process of experiencing the world. We might not notice that we shape what we sense. If you don't think about it thoroughly, it uh, just seems like the world appears to us the way it is because that's how it is. On one level, I guess that that's I think that's true, but it is more complicated than that. The different wavelengths of light which enters through our eye holes appears to us as colors. Let's say the wavelengths tell us green, different shades of green and shade and some other darker colors, browns, and we also see the shapes of the thing and we look at it and the tall brown column is immediately connected to the fluttering green above and this connects in us to the category which we call a tree. We make meaning out of all of this sensory content. We quite automatically and <laughs> immediately puzzle it together into a tree. And that process is normally quite unconscious. We place the sensory data of sight and sound and like the sounds of wind and leaves into a mental category of tree. We neatly frame the leaves and the branches and trunk into one thing. We can see that it's separate from the tree next to it or the grass behind it. And this is a most matter-of-factly process for us. But as engineers have discovered when trying to make robots do it, it's a very complicated affair. Just this framing and knowing where one thing ends and one thing starts and ends and another thing starts. It's very complicated. Yet for us, it seems simple and automatic. So let's go over that just one more time. Let, let's say we look at some other sense impression near the tree we saw just before, and it has a new but similar shape to the last. But where the other was brown, this one is white with black spots. The column uh, has the same organic bifurcating structure, and the green fluttering shapes are differently shaped. Our mind is not surprised or confused by these variations, and it quite instantly collates all the information and tells me that it is another kind of tree next to the other one. In this case, it's a birch tree with a well-known black and white trunk, so prevalent in the Norwegian forests. So we might never have seen this particular tree before, but we have a mental category which fits that particular conglomeration of sights and collars and rustling and shapes as firstly a plant, and then we might put it into the category of tree, and then a birch tree, and finally perhaps the particular tree which grows out of the cliff face outside my caravan. And if we don't have specialized knowledge about that particular species of tree, say we grew up in the tropics or, and never had seen a birch tree, we would place it in the category of tree and wouldn't go any further perhaps. And if we had never seen a tree at all, say we grew up above the tree line on a mountain where no trees grow, anywhere above roughly 2,000 meters, there's not a single tree. If you grew up there, uh, then we would probably still be able to categorize the birch tree as a plant at least. Our knowledge of the world directly impacts how we grasp the world.
we instantly make the connections and categorizations. Yet these two steps, as I think, are separate. One part is given to us from the world and the other is offered or sort of added to or connected to by ourselves. Just like there's the inner or there's the outer world and then there's the inner world and then there is that intersection, the between, the interesting place. And we perceive the world with our senses and then make sense of it by connecting all the different sensory inputs together into beings and objects. And the creation of connections and the puzzling together of percepts, uh, things that we have perceived, like the whites and blacks and rustling greens into a birch tree in our mind, is a participatory process. We participate in the creation of our world. The world does not just come towards us and we passively receive it. We take part in the shaping of it in our experience. So just to make sure that we're like, I'm not saying that the world is not out there and also not saying so the world is not just out there and we perceive it. It's a, it's a participatory process and uh, we constantly have to update our uh, inner experience and our thoughts of the world with what actually actually actual information from out there and this learning how to think and stuff we talked a little bit about in the last uh, first season towards the end there and this time here with fake news and a complete breakdown of trust in people who know have studied things like expertise um, I think this is uh, important to keep in mind anyway that we add a whole lot to the sensory input becomes more obvious when we look at the process of reading for instance as in, uh, infants and children when there uh, still is so much we don't know we look at things like lettering on a sign seeing black abstract squiggly symbols but we can't make any meaning out of it until we've learnt how to read before we learn how to read we lack the key to unlock what ties the abstract squiggles we call letters together into meaning bearing symbols if I'm a child and I don't know how to read or even don't really know about reading as a concept in the world, seeing the squiggles and not being able to read them does not irritate me. And if I don't know how to read but the letters, but you know, if I do know how to read uh, but the letters are diffuse or too small for me to see without my reading glasses or without my I'm calling them reading glasses, but I have to wear them all the time else I don't see anything. But anyway, if I'm trying to read and then I can't, then I get angry at the idiot who printed these sushi menus with such terribly tiny type fonts. They're just like little squiggles. But so until we learn to read and understand the black abstract squiggles and their relation to sounds and phonemes and how they connect into words and connect together into sentences they're just a chaotic mess on the paper no different from the markings made on wood by wood boring beetles you might even marvel at that annoying menu and then just enjoy the beauty of the script you know at least that's possible if you realize that it's actually you've grabbed a menu that's actually written in Japanese and you go oh it's very pretty something complex like reading is quite easy to see as part of our perceptive 
process. It's part of a specialized knowledge which allows us to understand an aspect of the world. It's We meet these things. Maybe it's not the best example because it's all very artificial, but still. Specialized knowledge of plants and nature or any other aspect of the world are also matters that are learnt and thus part of our cognition, but it's part of what we add onto the world, our addition to the participatory process of perception. As I've uh, touched on already by revealing my frustration and anger with tiny type on menus, there is a further element to the perceptive process and that is emotions and feeling. We are really completely indifferent to the world as we meet it. We respond to our sensory input emotionally and with feelings. And in a very real sense, it's emotions that uh, connects us to the things and events in the world. Emotions guides our actions. I think that's like, in a very real sense, it's emotions that guides us and connects us to the things and events in the world. It, emotions and that can be overridden by powerful ideas or ideology or a very strong will but emotions will still ultimately be our guides this brings us to talking about emotions and feelings Antonio Damasio expert on these things he actually makes a separation between emotions and feelings where emotions are the increased heart rates it's the it's the sweaty palms it's the all the physiological things that happen with us and feeling is then the you, how you combine all these things together these signs into a feeling of happiness or excitement or sadness that's just a little side note that's a little quote by me i guess in all your practices remember to slow down be led not by your thoughts but by feelings because feelings take time yeah well make of that what you will so there is feeling attached to any experience any experience or thing has the potential to affect us we feel sympathy or antipathy when we uh, experience things we are uh, feeling beings and the feelings are the deepest part of any organism's way to navigate the world. The sensory information of the world, or to put it more directly, the world has some qualities which affects us. Or at least there is some quality which emerges in the moment we relate to it. This quality can, at the very base level, be classified as something we're drawn towards or repulsed by. Something positive or negative, good or bad, friend or foe. But of course, it's supremely more nuanced and complicated than that. But as I see the white and black trunk, the small, jagged, vaguely teardrop leaves, like the shapes of them, and I immediately know it to be a birch tree, but simultaneously that sight triggers an emotional response beyond the connecting together of impressions. This emotional response is another aspect to how I meet the world or how I come towards the world. It does not come from outside. This response is what comes from inside me as a response to the world. I see the birch tree and I find it beautiful. 
the beauty of the light dancing on the leaves makes me feel good and it triggers memories of my childhood in Norwegian forests so these sensory perceptions makes me feel happy it maybe triggers nostalgia in a short way to express it is that I feel when I meet the world I feel when I meet the world I like certain things I dislike others I get good feelings when I experience certain things and not so good feelings when I perceive or participate in other things. As a great simplification, I gravitate towards what I like and I shy away from what I don't like. I might not run completely away from the things I don't like if I sit by a fire. I don't like to have any part of my body in that fire. I shy away from it. But I also don't like being cold. So on a cold night in the mountainous forests of Norwegian autumn, my feelings guide me into a perfect relation to the fire. I sit by the fire just where it makes me feel good. In this spot, I feel good. Our species have sat in this sweet spot for hundreds of thousands of years, and it feels like home. So there's, of course, another aspect that helps us divide up all these categories and things as we are meeting the world, what we are adding on to it. It's feeling, but it's also thinking. And as Descartes pointed out uh, when he said, cogito ergo sum, we, I, I think, therefore I am, or like we think, therefore we are, but equally and importantly, we also feel. So I reckon that's also part of wherefore we are, I think and feel, and therefore we are. We perceive the world through our senses and mental additions and orderings of the percepts, the things we perceive. But I'd say that our feelings are also a form of perception. How we feel about what we have perceived through our senses is an expression of our relationship to it. And what we feel is an important part of what then ultimately guides our actions in the world, what makes us tick. Feelings can be seen as a kind of a compass to use on the way. When something has uh, entered into us, we can think about it, form concepts of it, but once we have thought about it, our emotions helps to guide us in how to relate to it. Actually, our emotions can guide us even before we become consciously aware of what we think about something. And I'm reading um, the Master and his emissary, Ian McGilchrist's monumental book on the right and left brain, the different ways that they um, perceive the world or pay attention to the world. And um, um, yeah, there's just a lot in there about the, this thing that there's we might that we might actually most of the stuff that we think that we think because of all these reasons are just an overall thing that the brain has the right hemisphere has already made us think and then the left logical thinking makes up all these reasons for why that is the right thing but anyway that is a digression but it's an excellent uh, excellent book and check him out if you don't know Ian McGilchrist but if we like this thing if we if we see something and perceive something like and we perceive it if we see something and then perceive it as unjust or dangerous our emotions can kick in and guide us quite without thinking coming into it 
like a walk through a dark alley can make us feel uh, uncomfortable. And that's this emotion. The emotion is that our heart begins to race, our palms get sweaty, every noise becomes a personification of threat and danger, and your mouth gets dry and your knees get weak, and your feelings are telling you to modify your behavior. Like all of your emotions are telling you this is... And you to choose choose a different way, even if it is longer and more inconvenient. And it's probably telling you to walk in the light, even if it takes longer. Your emotions connect you to the world in a very different way than thinking. And it is a very powerful way for guiding your behavior in the world. It is possible to try to think rationally about the walk through that dark alley, that the probability of being attacked or eaten by a monster is low enough that it's worth the risk to save having to walk around a block. But it's not easy. As you walk into that dark, the emotions will warn you and keep you on your toes. In a way, this fact that we human beings can think something like this, that it's the threat, and think it and then take actions that goes against our emotions and ultimately then our feelings is part of what makes us human beings stand out in the animal kingdom. And this thing with modifying behavior, that to do what you will, to do things that you want to do, that leads us to the last kind of thing of we have thinking and feeling and then we have doing or the will to do things. Because as we journey through life, we interact with what we sense in the world through thinking and feeling. And these are not really, as we've seen, they're sort of entangled. They're so entangled that they form an intricate dance, always swapping back and forth on which one is in the lead. It's good to be mindful of this dance as we go along on our journey along the way. The dance between feelings and thinking. And we must keep an open mind, but not so open that our brain falls out. We must let our passions move us, but must not lose the ability to think right. Because thinking is at first merely present as a seed. As a first, I mean, like when you're born or whatever. So there is a potential. It takes years to learn how to think properly and to form complex thoughts and to abstract patterns from everyday life. Emotions, on the other hand, are present right from the start in all likelihood, from even before we are even born, feelings come, you know, before we develop the ability to think any kind of complex or even quite simple thoughts. Feelings guide us without us having to think things through. They guide us towards certain actions. And as we group, no, as we sort of, you know, as we sort of grow up and learn how to think, we get more and more aware that we have our own will and desires and that others have wills and desires all of their own. As kids we are very much guided first by our parents or guardians but our own will to act in the world is always there as well. In the beginning what we want is pretty simple like getting our will might find its primary manifestation through things like screaming when you want to breastfeed. And As we grow the things we want to do in the world becomes more complex. What will is, is perhaps a little more nebulous than thinking and feeling. Our will is not connected to any particular desire or preference, it's more like the sum of our wants and desires and preferences. Or the faculty which is involved in choosing one thing over, or over another. 
it's what moves us in the world it makes us do stuff for instance there might be a long period as you take your first steps along the way of the showman where there is little to financial little or no financial gain or no boost of your status among your friends it's often more to the contrary you might be poor because you have decided to be a showman because you are an or if you're an aspiring artist and you might be perceived as weird and odd for spending all waking hours of the day practicing ways to throw balls or ways to hold cards in your hand whilst trying to make them appear empty during this time your friends and family might be questioning you about your life choices and you might be hard-pressed to make them these choices make sense as a well thought out system anyway I did or a career plan you might not be able to convince them that this is a good idea and during these times it is your inner conviction that you are doing the right thing for yourself which carries you through I think this is a kind of manifestation of your will you want it's like you see things of your you see a will manifest more easily when it's hard to go there but you still pursue that angle even people go no this is weird your will helps you maintain your course in the face of adversity a good indication that you're on your right way is when these three faculties of thinking feeling and willing or wanting comes together when you're doing you're going through your uh, development not just because of results out in the outer world uh, immediate or future but when you are practicing your craft because it feels right and you think it might be able to provide for your inner and outer needs if you have this conviction in your heart and in your head with the thinking and the feeling you'll be able to enact your will in the world you'll be able to do what you want it's maybe what you want is is sort of like the sum of it's the coming together of the thinking and the feeling anyway if these three faculties align you'll have no problem facing the fact that your work can and quite possibly will be perceived as worthless by others the truth like the outer truth of whatever you have decided you want might uh, be non-existent or invisible to others the truth of it is just not possible to see even when the inner truth is so bright and burning like a neutron star in your own heart you might not achieve any results in the outer world in the beginning but if your inner experience of its value and rightness and truth then the fulfillment of your vocation is strong and firm then you are on your way and have already arrived as you walked it hmm? it's not about the destination it's about the walking of the way that's where we spend most of our time as we've talked about before so if you're doing something and it feels right and you think it's right then you know you're well on the way to having a good life not just a sustaining life or having a good life but you're on your way to make it better thinking feeling and willing or thinking feeling and doing and as i see it these three faculties of thinking feeling and doing are the core faculties of experiencing and interacting with the world and the reason i might be so aware of these three 
quite abstract concepts, is perhaps that I went to a Steiner school or a Wolof school, and the education in these schools uses these three things. It has a sort of shorthand because it takes these this threefold nature of the human being very seriously. And in that context, it's often said that they aim to educate the whole human being by targeting the head, the heart, and the hands, which can be seen as a shorthand for thinking, feeling, and doing, or as it's called, willing. For what it's worth, I'd say that these, th that personally, I'd say that these three main faculties, they are the kind of, as far as I um, think of it, as this, this is the kind of human soul. It's manifesting itself through these three sort of faculties. This is... This idea of the human as three-parted is not unique to Steiner. Uh, in fact, this head, heart and hand of the Steiner schools didn't originate with Steiner, but with another Swiss philosopher called Johann Pestalozzi. So there are many great thinkers who have drawn similar conclusions when contemplating human nature. Plato, he talked about three aspects of the human being. He called them reason spirit and appetite, which seems to roughly align with the thought, feeling and will. And both Freud and Jung also operated with systems where we find this threefoldness. Each system, like what Freud, Jung, Plato or Steiner or whatever these people are talking about, is subtly or not so subtly different. But this is not something we need to explore further here. It's just to place this idea of the human nature as threefold in a context which justifies it as a folk psychological phenomenon, something which is useful for us along the way. And I'm not expecting you or anyone to believe that dividing the human up into three faculties of thinking, feeling, <laughs> feeling and willing somehow will replace our detailed biological or psychological understanding of humanity. What I'm proposing is that this is just a very useful tool to grasp the endless complexity of human behavior and expression and uh, it makes it easier to talk about and of course I'm always talking here directly about the creation or watching of shows you know understanding what it is that we do I find that it's a good folk psychological model that certainly is valuable to me personally but more importantly for us here it's a this is the kind of map that I use in very practical ways when I create material for my shows by always asking whether we have addressed all three faculties in our sketching out of a new act we can quickly discover potential shortcomings or understand what kind of routine we are creating it's a good shorthand way to judge the contents of our acts this is equally so for acts that are meant to go on a stage as with the acts that we perform in the real world no act needs to, not all acts needs to have all three in perfect balance. It's like each act is highlighting from different things. But if they are integrated in a good balanced manner, then this is a good sign. These three aspects of the human soul, uh, and uh, they dance their way through our lives, always spinning and weaving. And we are at times driven by thoughts, other times by feelings, and sometimes by our will or our desires. Every so often, they swap which one takes the lead in the dance and leading in their drive to ignite our will to action. But I guess this is also something we're going to, as we go on, This will, these three will sort of tie themselves into the contents of what shows are made up of and everything. So to me, these three human faculties, which we 
all can find and know within us, our ways, our inner geography expresses itself. That thing that I said, we can call that the soul, maybe. Anyone who has been sitting in meditation trying not to think has experienced that our mind produces thoughts and you can't stop it if you try. You have seemingly no control over when or what thoughts appear when you're trying to still your mind and only observe what comes into your attention. As we interact with the world, we feel happy, frustrated or hopeful. And even when the world around us punishes us with pandemics or cultural challenges of any sort, our will to create is still present in us, egging us on. This intertwined dance is, as I've pointed out before, kind of what I think of as the soul. And there are those who believe the soul to be some immaterial and everlasting thing in itself, and that might be. And there are also those who say that a person's unique biological and neurological makeup is what produces whatever comes together in their experience as themselves. And that might also be the case. That that's what the soul is. But my point is that whatever the soul is, it is an expression of ourselves here and now. And regardless of what might or might not happen after we're dead, this life is our chance. We know this for sure. I want to live as if this life is my last and make it count every day every moment at the end of the day we're all walking into the arms of death each step leading us closer and there's nothing to do about that but to decide the way we walk and those whose thoughts and feelings align behind their will to act in the world we could possibly be said that we are dancing we're dancing along the way, dancing along the way into the arms of death. And that turned a bit uh, bleak there in the end, but, uh, you know, I do believe that it's, it's, um, it's a good way and to, uh, to keep these three things in mind. If you find yourself lacking in any of them, then this is, um, this is, um, good way to notice it and go okay well that means i need a little bit of this or a little bit more of that in my life all right that was like a strenuous little walk upwards on a steep cliff along this journey but um, interesting things i find very interesting and i find that these concepts uh, as we move on starting from the next episode uh, of this exciting page turning adventure um, we will um, start to see these um, human faculties sort of reflect themselves quite directly in the show and further on in showmanship and uh, all that. And uh, we'll all be better off for having uh, considered it and thought about it. So, with that, I don't have anything more to say. But, I mean, please, though, tell some friends about this. Share it. If you do find it valuable... Tell your friends, put a link to the your favorite episode. Put a link uh, directly on someone else's page. Send them a direct message and tell them that this is worthwhile or that. This has been keeping you um, sane throughout the lockdowns or keeping your head on straight. Or it has been blowing your mind. I don't know what it has been doing. So uh, please uh, tell your friends and continue on telling me send me an email uh, on uh, 
thewayoftheshowman at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook as Captain Frodo or Frodo Santini. It's a pleasure having you here as a companion on along the way. And uh, that is uh, all I have to say. So uh, all that's left to say, that is uh, take care of yourself and those you love. And I hope to see you along the way. Mm-hmm.